You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome to Crash Course, a podcast about business, political, and social disruption, and what we can learn from it. I'm Tim O'Brien. Today's Crash Course, Silicon Valley Bank versus the Fed. Imagine you couldn't take another breath because oxygen disappeared. You gasp for air until your body just shuts down. Money provides oxygen to our economy. When the money flow slows, so does the economy. If money stops circulating, the economy seizes. Like your body deprived of oxygen, it shuts down. That's why banking crises freak out people. Banks are the lungs of a thriving economy, oxygenating everything with money. When one bank topples, no biggie. When many banks topple, whoops. Silicon Valley Bank collapsed recently a debacle that exposed fault lines running beneath a legendary financial ecosystem. But it was just one bank. Since then, though, other banks have run into trouble. Depositors, investors, regulators, and managers have all been worried. Sitting atop that uncertainty is the Federal Reserve, the powerhouse that sets interest rates and thus governs how easy it is for money to course through the economy. What does this mean? And what's going to happen next? To help solve that mystery, I give you Paul Davies, a financial columnist for Bloomberg Opinion and somebody steeped in the chaos that can happen when banks and money collide with human frailty and the power of the Fed. Hi, Paul. Hey, how you doing, Tim? Good. You're such a calm guy most of the time. And so I was wondering if any of this has you worried at a 35,000 foot level. I mean, it does. It didn't at first because... The situation of banks, you know, in Europe and in the US mostly is that they are very well capitalized and that they have an awful lot of easily sellable and liquid assets on their balance sheets to sort of meet any necessity. We have no kind of problem with, you know, mortgages going bad like we did, you know, 15 years ago. But it started to worry me more because a lot of what we're seeing just sort of seems to make so little sense in a way. There's a kind of a fear and a a loss of faith that seems to be running through large parts of the banking system or, well, some small and obvious parts of the banking system, but it seems to have spread in sort of unpredictable ways. And this sort of fear is affecting the stability of funding to banks by making deposits, you know, a worry in a way that they really ought not to be. People are moving deposits when they probably have no real fundamental reason to. But when a lot of people move deposits at the same time, that causes problems. Well, and I do think that we're in a moment right now where information flow and money flow 
are both very rapid in an almost hair-trigger way. And that is something that's distinct about what we're living through right now, is that average people and big institutions can get what they think are important insights into the possibility of failure. And because we're weak and fearful people, we run for the exits when things like that happen. And this, to me, watching it feels like it's an example of how quickly panic can spread, even if there's not an authentic financial contagion. It's true. I mean, rumors can spread, obviously, very, very quickly through social media and, you know, other means in a way that they simply didn't 15 years ago, I don't think. Lots of people have made the point that during 2008, when we last had a financial crisis, the iPhone as the most common smartphone was only a year old. And the ability of all of us to communicate rapidly with large numbers of other people and also to kind of move our money from one bank account to another just through the screen of our phone just didn't exist in the way that it does now. I want to come back a little later to the implications of that, but I want to also put all of this in context, how we got into this sort of swamp of fear and uncertainty that we're in right now. And let's start with Silicon Valley Bank as a departure point that essentially the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank recently is sort of the incenting moment. That's what got everyone paying attention across the U.S. and then ultimately across both oceans to see where other problems might reside. Tell us a little bit about what got Silicon Valley Bank into trouble. So Silicon Valley Bank, in the same way as Silvergate Bank before it, or you know, around the same time as well, were very interesting in the sense that what killed them wasn't bad assets, which is normally what provokes panic in banks. It was bad liabilities. And what I mean by that is they had too many of the same kinds of deposits from the same kinds of people who were all going to behave in a very similar way. They were concentrated, so Silvergate, on people who wanted to trade crypto and, and settle money going in and out of crypto currencies and, and normal currencies. Silicon Valley Bank just very concentrated on a certain group of venture capital funds and their companies that they invested in. And Silicon Valley startups. Silicon Valley startups, indeed. And when those, some of those VCs, some of them publicly, decided that they were a bit unsure about Silicon Valley Bank's viability, they advised, and again, sometimes quite publicly, advised a lot of their companies to start moving their money. And that sometimes over Twitter, which is also a new aspect of this crisis, is that social media platforms have become megaphones for different stakeholders to incent people to behave in certain ways. And to behave in extremely irresponsible ways and provoke panic. But yeah, so this was the problem. Concentrated deposits and herd-like behavior among those depositors meant that it didn't really matter what assets Silicon Valley Bank had. I mean, in fact, it had what we would traditionally expect to be highly liquid and, and very valuable assets. But it didn't matter what they had because the problem is when you have to realize a lot of cash to pay back depositors all at once, and you have to sell in, you know, a panic or in a hurry, you're never going to get the value of those assets that you think they're worth. Well, and I think as it pertains to Silicon Valley Bank or SVB, as some people call it, I don't think it's actually the problem didn't reside on the asset side of the balance sheet. To me, it resides and resided on the liability side. They had been part of this very unique ecosystem decades of amazing growth, venture capitalists in Silicon Valley, the startups they funded, and the bank, 
all sort of had this virtuous cycle of relationships that allowed them to seed one another's activities without it ever losing any of its momentum until the Fed raised interest rates. And then the fact that Silicon Valley Bank had so much of its business concentrated in one population of customers, that was actually what brought it down, not the asset side of its balance sheet, right? Yeah, the asset side was the sort of the precursor in a way. And this is something that, you know, people had noticed months in advance. The problem in the US or one of the problems in the US is we ended up with a sort of a two tier system of regulation where all banks with assets of more than $250 billion were held to standards of liquidity, held to standards of having to mark their assets to market and report those values and take the hit through their equity, through their capital. And smaller banks didn't have to do a lot of this stuff in the same way. People knew that Silicon Valley Bank was carrying a bunch of safe bonds, but which had declined in value because of interest rate rises. And if it had to sell those bonds, it was going to realize some losses. People knew that for months. But for some reason, it suddenly became much more pertinent to worry about that. And that's part of what started the run on the bank. But I mean, both of these banks, Silicon Valley Bank and Silvergate Bank, were exposed to interest rate risk in multiple ways, because the industries that they served were industries that benefited directly off of ultra low interest rates. The reason why crypto took off is because of ultra low rates and all of the money that had flooded into the economy through the COVID pandemic. People were just looking for other stuff to do with their money. And that's kind of part of what drove the whole crypto trading boom. Similarly with VCs, it's like over the last, what, 10, 15 years, that industry has boomed as people have looked to invest in companies that don't necessarily produce a good return now or profits now, but because ultra low interest rates value future profits much more highly and you expect these to be fast growing companies, they attracted huge swarms of cash, huge floods of cash. And cash that went into essentially kind of an opaque environment because in the past, those small companies, if they wanted a lot of cash, had to go public. And going public offered some transparency into how solid their finances were. But in a world in which there's really low interest rates and they can get money elsewhere, you can keep some of those startup problems in the dark. I want to step back for a second on what you were just saying about interest rates rising. This wasn't a normal interest rate environment, obviously, because of the fear of inflation. The Fed and other central banks around the world began hiking interest rates at a historically rapid clip. Within a matter of months, you were seeing 100 basis point moves that no one was prepared for. The stock market wasn't prepared for it. The bond market wasn't prepared for it. And now we know banks like Silicon Valley Bank wasn't prepared for it. Do you think that that interest rate hike, that rapid interest rate hike in the U.S. by the Fed was what did SVB in? Or was it also just the bank's own mismanagement over a period of time? Without a doubt, it was the bank's own mismanagement over a long period of time. They could have invested their liquidity, their spare cash better. They could have hedged their interest rate risk on the asset side of their books. And they could have done, I guess, lots of other things to ensure that the precipitate cause to their collapse didn't crop up in the same way. However, the problem cropped up in part because of the interest rate rises. And I think the interesting thing about that is they are in some senses more of a symptom of a bunch of tensions that are being laid bare in the economy through these interest rate rises. 
And this is what's going to get really interesting in, in the next sort of month or so is just how quickly or how rapidly those interest rate rises are now feeding through into the flow of money and how credit is extended and banks' own attitudes to risk. Because, you know, you can keep raising rates and keep raising rates and keep raising rates and expect at some time the economy is going to start to sort of slow down steadily. The way I think it happens, actually, and the, I think what we're seeing now is you raise rates, you raise rates, you raise rates, and then at a certain point, like an elastic band, it comes pinging towards you, the result of your rate rises. And what comes pinging towards you is you know, a rapid tightening in credit availability from banks, a rapid reduction in banks' own risk appetites, and how much cash they want to hoard themselves against being called on their own deposits, and how much they're prepared to lend to companies and people and to other financial institutions through the system. And actually, what we have seen is also now this kind of global coordination among central banks to try and aid and support the amount of dollars flowing through the system. And I think that's a sign of, you know, liquidity issues spreading beyond the borders of the US and, you know, people finding it difficult to access dollars because of these changes in risk appetite. One of Warren Buffett's famous aphorisms is when the tide goes out, you get to see who's been swimming naked. And interest rates rose and we started to see who was swimming naked. Some of the crypto banks, SVB, et cetera, et cetera. And swimming naked implies that they were taking risks they shouldn't have taken, and now they're exposed. Nonetheless, when Silicon Valley Bank began teetering, the feds rushed in and they contemplated using federal powers. They didn't use taxpayers' money in that instance, but federal powers to essentially backstop that bank. I still have a lot of problems with that, but I want to know what you think about that first. Was it wise for federal regulators to intervene in the Silicon Valley bank collapse? I mean, in a sense, it seems as if the bank could have been small enough to have fallen over without very widespread repercussions. Obviously, we don't get to see everything that they get to see in terms of the state of the financial system. But they decided, in their wisdom, that this was a systemic bank after all. To me, what that says is kind of I'm less interested or less worried about whether they acted rightly or wrongly in this instance. I'm more concerned about the fact that we saw this big push for deregulation in 2018, which took away the systemic designation from a lot of banks under the $250 billion asset level after a lot of lobbying from a lot of smaller banks, including SVB itself directly. and With the idea that the only banks that were systemically threatening to the economy, the only banks that could cut oxygen supplies off to the economy were the large money center banks exactly. that had been at the center of the 2008 collapse. Yeah. And so everybody decided in their wisdom that these smaller banks were not systemic. And yet the second one of them teeters, and not even the biggest of these smaller banks, you have to rush in, decide it is systemic after all, and then do whatever you can to support the financial system. So on the note of deciding to do whatever we need to do to support the financial system, I'm going to take a break so we can hear from our sponsor who's helping us support this show. We'll be right back. You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. 
And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. I'm talking uh, with Paul Davies, who is a financial wizard and a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, and a wonderful guy to speak to when you're trying to sort out something as complex as a banking crisis. We've been talking about the debacle at Silicon Valley Bank and some troubled crypto banks. It's a very specific sector of banks. And it makes me wonder whether or not more problems lie ahead for other banks, Paul, and thus the economy more generally. Or again, is this just sector specific and not systemic? Couldn't we dismiss the crypto lenders and SVB as victims of their own recklessness and ineptitude, allow them to crash and burn, and then move happily on as healthier banks do business the way they should? Well, this is going to depend a hell of a lot on how other banks react to this environment. We have been expecting banks to perhaps start reining in the amount of credit that they're willing to provide for a while already. I mean, that's kind of natural when interest rates rise. It's sort of you know, part of what increasing interest rates is meant to do. But at the same time, we've had this kind of weird situation where, especially in the US, consumer balance sheets, household balance sheets, people's own financial position has been very healthy because people saved up all manner of money during the period of lockdowns, during the COVID pandemic. They paid down personal debt. And so the amount of problem loans, the amount of problems that people have been having repaying their debt has been utterly minimal for ages and ages and ages. And this has been a very strange world with high inflation and rising rates and yet still a healthy consumer and very, very healthy bank earnings. Now we've reached this kind of tipping point, I think, and it's how banks react to that, how quickly they rein in their credit provision, how rapidly their risk appetite shrinks that will really govern what is the impact on the economy beyond the banks themselves. The old adage is a banker is someone who will give you an umbrella when the sun is shining and then ask for it back as soon as it starts <laughs> to rain. Right. If they're all asking for their umbrellas back right now, that's going to hurt the economy directly. And that's going to be the end of the interest rate hiking cycle. Yeah, one of the other things that is said about banks is that they love a free market winner-take-all system on the way up and they love socialism on the way down. 
And I think that that's going to get tested possibly in future months as this crisis continues to reveal itself. As we know in crises, sometimes new things flare up in unexpected places. And shortly after Silicon Valley Bank got wobbly, a well-known and legendary Swiss bank, Credit Suisse, revealed itself as another victim of a nasty interest rate environment and public doubts about its viability. You covered that from ground zero. Tell me, why was there so much hand-wringing to begin with about Credit Suisse? Again, was this a bank that was systemic or was it a bank that was just an individual victim of its own missteps? I mean, Credit Suisse is definitely a globally systemic bank. All regulators recognize that and it carries higher capital charges because of that. But explain that. Why is, it syst why is Credit Suisse systemic and Silicon Valley Bank may not be? So Credit Suisse has operations all around the world. It's a big dealer in stocks and bonds and, and most importantly, you know, derivatives of, of all kinds between banks. And it's got an investment bank and a trading operation in the US and in Europe and in Asia. It has lots of other banks as counterparties, as banks it faces off against in trades. So what makes a bank systemic is if it gets into trouble or falls over, then it can default on a lot of obligations or positions it has with lots of other banks. And that sends a series of dominoes cascading through the system of trade failures, collateral losses, and so on. And as all other banks react to any loss that they might take off of the first one that's failed, they'll maybe default on some of their own obligations to other banks or just pull in extra liquidity that they suddenly need. And before you know it, you've just got this kind of rolling storm going through the financial system. And banks that may not have been stressed become stressed because of Credit Suisse's stresses. Exactly. And everybody it's sort of kind is of, like COVID-19. Yeah. I mean, the onset of COVID-19 is, is a really sort of good example because that was a moment when everybody gathered all of the cash that they possibly could to themselves to protect themselves against, you know, not being able to pay other people that they owed money to because nobody wants to go bust. And in a situation where you see one bank going bust, what we saw in you know, 2007, 2008, was very much that. I mean, it was caused by different things, but you know, a bank goes bust, everybody gets worried about all of their exposures, all of their ability to pay anybody, and they all gather their assets, their liquidity to themselves, and they just sort of stop doing business. You kind of stop doing business. And like you were saying at the beginning, like if the oxygen is turned off, then the rest of the body just sort of fails. What happened in Credit Suisse's case is also interesting because... They weren't a failing bank per se. They had viable assets. They had a lot of goods on their balance sheet that they could have used to keep themselves afloat. Or am I simplifying that too much? No, you are not simplifying that. Their balance sheet was perfectly good, but they were a failing bank in the sense of they could not get their strategy clear and sorted. They were kind of in the middle of their... For years, they could do For years. It. So, I mean, they were in the middle of their third strategic overhaul and restructuring since 2015, 2016. They were struggling to get the details about how this was going to work and what exactly they were going to do and where they were going to be focused. They were struggling to get those details out quickly enough. Their problem really was that all of this left them with very few supporters. There was no keen marginal buyer of the shares in Credit Suisse on any day when they fell. Including the Swiss government. Including the Swiss government. And in the end, with Credit Suisse, they arranged a shotgun marriage. Tell me a little bit about what happened there. As you said, Credit Suisse had plenty of cash on its balance sheet. It could service a lot of withdrawals. 
the Swiss National Bank had come out in the middle of the week and said, we'll give you another $54 billion or 50 billion Swiss francs if you need it, should you still get lots of withdrawals. But despite the strength of their balance sheet, the amount of capital they had, they had just sort of lost the faith of two important constituents. One, a lot of depositors, particularly, it seems, among their very rich clients in places like Asia. But two, and perhaps even more importantly, among their counterparties. So as I was talking about earlier, the people that they face off against when they're doing derivatives trades and this sort of thing. And the problem with that is when you lose the faith of those counterparties, they want a number of things. They want to do no more business with you, which means you don't make any money. They want to ask you for more collateral. You know, you have to give them more cash or more safe bonds sometimes, which is another drain on your balance sheet. Or they will reject your own securities as collateral against other people's trades, which means your own securities keep getting sold too, and you just look riskier and riskier. It's a very mechanical and difficult spiral to break out of. When your stocks and your bonds, your own shares and your own bonds keep collapsing in value, you look increasingly risky, people just don't want to do business with you so much, they sell your stocks and your bonds mechanically when they're using them as collateral, and that's it. The situation just feeds The airplane goes into a nosedive. Exactly. And even if you can get the engines running again, you may not be able to pull out of that before you hit the water. Exactly. I guess one virtue to me of the UBS Credit Suisse deal is that it didn't involve taxpayer funds. Essentially, it forced two banks to merge to solve the weaker banks' problems. That seems to me to be a, an elegant solution. It may not be a permanent solution. Elegant may not be the right word. Maybe it's, it feels to me like a better solution. Because the one thing that bothers me in all of this is that age-old problem of moral hazard. The idea that if bankers know that the federal government is going to come in and rescue them from their mistakes, there's no penalty for them for making mistakes. And so they keep making the mistakes again and again because they get a bailout. Does moral hazard loom large in your mind right now as you look at how all of this is unfolding? I mean, I don't think so in terms of the recent collapses that we've seen, because in the US cases, shareholders have been completely wiped out. I think in Credit Suisse's case, shareholders have been mostly wiped out and risky bonds have been completely wiped out. There's an argument and there's probably some lawsuits to be had over that, the fact that bonds have gone when shares haven't gone completely. But the people who benefit most from taking risk when you're running a bank, i.e. the shareholders and the managements, they've lost everything or most of what they ever would have made. Although the management probably spent many, many years padding their own bank accounts before the crash happened. They might well have done. And I'm sure there's plenty of people who still have nice large houses that at the very least they could sell to live off the money, if not actually kind of live in forever. Right. So that's not a problem? Well, I mean, perhaps it is. We do have powers to kind of claw back pay. And I guess if you decided, if you wanted to pursue somebody civilly or criminally for appallingly bad management, for negligence or, you know, even criminal behavior, then you absolutely could, I'm sure. But And we've seen in the Silicon Valley Bank case, in fact, that lawsuits have now been filed. The SEC is looking at it. So there may be some court action in yeah, all of this. They too. may have to pay up you know, money to somebody somewhere at some point. But we sure do give the financial sector a set of cushions that we don't give other industries. And it gets breaks that no one else gets. Why is that? That is because finance banking is a kind of a 
collective utility that we all rely on. It's a service that the economy needs to some degree to keep functioning. Without the provision of credit in some form, you know, how would people invest? How would people build new factories or add extra chairs to their hair salon or anything that you want to think about that could improve economic activity, improve productivity, all of those good things that we like to see and that makes us all better off ultimately. So it's very important that we have banking, credit creation of some form. Now, whether we've got it in exactly the right form is an endless debate. And I think that we've been having lots of debates about this since 2008. But it's a very important part of the economy that we've arrived at this way of running banks. And maybe it's a bit like the old Churchill quotes, like, democracy is the worst system you could have apart from all the other ones. So now we've gotten both Winston Churchill and Warren Buffett into the same podcast. And on that note, I'm going to take a break. And when we come back, I demand that you find some other historical figure to quote in the back end of the show. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. I am back with Paul Davies talking about what happens when a bank of any stripe collides with the reality of central banks raising interest rates at a rapid clip. Central bankers, Paul, obviously have loomed large in this crisis that banks are wrestling with right now because they engineered an unusually rapid round of rate increases that took industries and everyone else off guard. And we were talking earlier about this is the system we have. These are the banks we have. This is the regulatory architecture we have. What do you think is the best path forward for regulators, given what we've seen now in the crypto sphere, in the venture capital banking sphere, in the major investment banking sphere with Credit Suisse. What do regulators need to think about going forward? I mean, in the first instance, in the US, they need to do something which I'm pretty sure they're going to do, which is apply more systemic and tougher regulations to 
all of those mid-sized banks, you know, less than $250 billion in assets that will end this kind of two-tier system and make those smaller banks, I think, safer and better managed and give them much stronger oversight. That's the first thing. In terms of the wider regulatory picture, I mean, this is part of the mystery of what's going on right now. And part of the whole strangeness of it is all of these banks now, post the 2008 crisis, the way their balance sheets are set up, they should be perfectly well defended against all of the normal things that bring banks down. They don't have a lot of terrible assets that are about to go bad. They don't have too many assets that they can't shift if they need to pay people back money. They do have a lot of high quality liquid assets, we call them, you know, shorter term treasuries and other government bonds and things like this, which are about as close to money as you can get. So part of what's going on is about some of the ripples of the higher interest rates running through the system and how that might destabilize things. But another part of what's going on is a sort of a general sense of mistrust of institutions, I think, more broadly, and in terms of not only where your money is safe, but what money you should even have. Well, you know, that's interesting because we were talking about assets, but I think a factor in all this, too, is gossip. And the way that I think we as human beings, we talked about this in the top of the show, begin to let troubles mount in our own minds and then can find an echo chamber for those fears on social media over drinks with friends, with the big difference again that now gossip moves at light speed, whether it's political gossip or financial gossip or social gossip. And, oh, you know what? I could bring in Mark Twain now since we said we would get a third person. But I think he said something to the effect that a lie travels around the world before the truth even gets to put its shoes on or something to that effect. I'm sure I blew that. But I just wanted to get our trifecta of quotes of old men. But that is the interesting thing about what we're in right now is it's a reflection as much on human uncertainty and this mounting distrust we've had. I think social media plays a role in faith in institutions, whether they're banks or governments or courts. Yeah, I think there's two things. I think, as you say, the social media aspect means that wacky, weird, untrue opinions or views of the world can find you know, mutual support and amplification much more rapidly and coalesce into large groups of people who think the same thing, no matter how mad more rational people might think that view is. They can hold that view and confirm that view with each other. And at the same time, we've had, I think, a class of politicians who have systematically set out to undermine trust in all manner of institutions in, you know, not only the US, but in large parts of Europe and certainly in the UK as well, and get people to question whether they can even trust the most basic elements of parts of government. And ultimately, if we're really not careful, and this is a somewhat sensationalist conclusion to it all, but ultimately, if we're really not careful, you could get to the point where people stop trusting in money at all, the idea of fiat currency. I mean, to be fair, there's a whole lot of crypto people who would really that, like that to fact, happen. That was their line, right? You shouldn't trust fiat currency. It's issued by the government. Therefore, trust 5,000 of us whippersnappers who trade this stuff digitally and we'll be there for you. But I think one of the odd things about this current moment is you have people taking deposits out of smaller banks, putting them into larger banks sometimes, or into things like money market funds and, and treasury bills in ways that can sometimes take that money out of the market completely and go back to the Fed. 
And then the Fed and the large banks are recycling that money back round into the smaller banks, temporarily or otherwise, to help keep them alive and stop them suffering from you know any loss of deposits. Giving them some oxygen. And at a certain point, everybody could turn around and sort of realise, actually, this is all just the same money and all just, in some ways, the same risk. And that would be a real sort of danger point, I think. You know, I'm old enough to remember long days and nights at the New York Times in 2008, trying to sort through that financial crisis. We've come through this time and again. It keeps happening. Yes, we're in a digital era where gossip moves around really quickly and people don't trust institutions. But this stuff also keeps repeating itself. Why is that? I think the reason that is, is because money itself is based on a, a kind of trust and a kind of agreement. And what we count of as things that are money-like in terms of, you know, the bonds that we will accept as being closest to money or other sorts of assets. When times are good, you know, this is the theory of Hyman Minsky, really. But when times are good, what we think counts as money and what we think counts as good assets kind of expands and takes in all manner of things. And then when times get bumpy, then we all rush to the most trustworthy form of money that we can think of or the most liquid form of money that we can think of. And the reason why we keep having banking crises is because each bank in some way is a producer of its own money. The deposits that we have in our bank accounts are just a promise that the bank that we use will eventually make good on some payment that we want to make to somebody else. And now every time that we start to get a sort of a panic or a worry about what is money and what is the good money, part of the problem is always that some banks are deemed not good money anymore. So you want to move your ability to make payments to a bank that is good money. Well, and they're typically, when a bank is deemed untrustworthy, it's often, though not always, we're seeing this nuance in the current crisis, but at least in the past crises, they were exposed as being just outrageously inept when it came to risk management. You know, banks do do two things. They are a vehicle for someone showing up at their door with a piece of paper called a dollar or a pound or, or euro, whatever it is. And you sort of have this guarantee that it will be worth something later on. But it's just a piece of paper. It's really built on trust, which is ineffable. But banks are also supposed to manage that responsibly and not take risks that would imperil that trust. Yet we find banks taking outlandish risks time and time again. Is that a necessity of vibrancy in the economy? Or is it something that could be curtailed in a more constructive way? I think it's something that could be curtailed. It's something that we have curtailed quite a lot since the last crisis. But I think that whatever regulatory framework you have... The incentives of private banks where people are paid based on the profits that they make is to often eke out every last little bit of risk that you're allowed to take to the final ultimate dollar of profit that you can make from that. And there's a whole section of finance, and I think it's probably lesser now than it was in 2008, but there's a whole section of finance which is, it's debatable whether you know, the function that is performing is adding to the productive capability of the economy. Like I said, you can lend to an entrepreneur who wants to build a factory, buy plants and machinery and produce goods. That's a sort of a productive endeavor. Or you can keep lending to people so they can buy and sell the same house among themselves for an ever greater value. Now, that is somewhat less productive. Or you can take a whole load of those house loans 
tie them up in a big bundle, chop that bundle up into smaller bundles, put it in another kind of vehicle, and then keep selling pieces of those all around the world. Financial engineering. That is really not very productive in terms of the real economy. So, you know, that's the sort of the debate that we need to have. That's where we should look. I think, you know, the banking system is better today than it was 15 years ago in, in that basis. But as I say, private banks are incentivized to pursue almost every last dollar of profit that they can. Paul, we don't let anybody escape the show without telling us what they've learned that they didn't know before. And you've been watching banks and the financial sector for a long time, looking at the demise of SVB and its knockoff effects at institutions like Credit Suisse. What have you learned from this episode that you didn't know before? What has this collision taught you? I think the key thing that it's taught me is even when all of the fundamentals, all of the foundational numbers of the state of an institution say that it's sound and say that it's trustworthy, you can still have people turn around and say, ah, I don't like it. I'm leaving. Paul, we're out of time. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. You can follow Paul Davies on Twitter at Paul J. Davies and read his deft handiwork on our website, Bloomberg Opinion. Here at Crash Course, we believe that collisions can be messy, impressive, challenging, surprising, and always instructive. In today's Crash Course, I learned that this era of uncertainty and distrust that we live in has left no institution untouched, including, it would seem, the entire banking system. And the consequences of that have yet to be fully understood. What did you learn? We'd love to hear from you. You can tweet at the Bloomberg Opinion handle, at Opinion, or me, at Tim O'Brien, using the hashtag Bloomberg Crash Course. You can also subscribe to our show wherever you're listening right now and leave us a review. It helps more people find the show. This episode was produced by the indispensable Anna Mazarakis and me. And we're adding Moses Andam to our production team this week. Our supervising producer is Magnus Hendrickson, and we had editing help from Sage Bauman, Katie Boyce, Jeff Krokot, Mike Nietzsche, and Christine Vanden Bylard. Blake Maples does our sound engineering, and our original theme song was composed by Luis Guerra. I'm Tim O'Brien. We'll be back next week. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.